Welcome to The Interview, where we share inspiring career stories and advice from experts and thought leaders on any and all topics, everything from college admissions tips to the latest medical and self-care advice. I'm host Leslie Heaney, and I'm excited to share these compelling stories with you. I hope you'll learn something new and hopefully share a few laughs along the way. Today on the show, I'm so very excited to spend time with Matt Sharp, founder of Sharp Entertainment, one of the most successful conglomerates in reality television. Matt's hit shows include everything from 90 Day Fiancé, which is a complete juggernaut, to Doomsday Preppers, Punk and Chunkin', Man vs. Food. Matt has so many hit shows, it would be impossible actually to list them all. But besides being a mega hit producer and CEO, Matt is one of the finest people you'll ever meet. He's absolutely hilarious. And he has one of the most wonderful families around. So Matt's going to talk to us about how he got started, the trajectory of his career, and what a day in the life of a mega hit reality television show producer is like. I'll also mention this interview was conducted using remote microphones, so there's a bit of spotty volume at certain times. So with that, here's Matt. Okay, Matt, so Sharp Entertainment started in 2003. What were you, what was your background or what what were you doing before that? Um, Well, I was always a a kid who was, you know, when when I came to New York City and I was like one of these kids who was from central New York and, um, you know, was constantly making videos with my buddies. And it was like, you know, whenever a, a teacher gave us an assignment, it would be, um, you can either write a paper or you can make a video. And we're like, let me think about that. We're going to do the video. And, um, and so, and this was, you know, this was the eighties. And at the time, you know, every everyone's now has like editing equipment on their phones and they can whip together a TikTok video in 10 seconds. But back in the day, I had a very savvy friend named Tom and Tom could string together two VHS players with with wires. And he would we would actually oh, edit. Like, with VHS you're, like weird you're like weird science. Oh, of you're like- totally weird science. Yes. Yeah. So, so we had, so we made videos, we made all kinds of things like, you know, videos of us dunking. We were TikTok basically before TikTok, we were Instagram before Instagram. Um, and we were doing all this stuff and kind of entertaining our friends and our parents. Um, and at the same time, I was the kid who was like extremely entrepreneurial. I was kind of like, you know, the sharky kid who was like in my bedroom, like, Hey, you want to buy my clothes? Uh, you know, I'll give you a good deal on that. I was the kid who went to soccer camp when I was 10 and, and went to the grocery store prior to soccer camp, bought a huge thing of bulk candy and sold candy at soccer camp. I, I am in high school. I had a window washing business. It was sharp shine, a driveway ceiling. You business. Knew, I forget you told me about sharp, sharp shine. There's another, what's the other one that has the great title? Well, well, Sharp Seal was the sharp, uh, well, that was sharp Seal. I don't know if it's as good a title, but but that was the driveway ceiling business. Much dirtier. What we realized when we did that, Leslie, is that you know very quickly I realized that that Sharp Shine when you're shining windows that you're dealing with moms and you're in yeah. high school and you're like, oh, Mrs. So and So, and she's like, can we get you a little lemonade, Matt? That would be great. You know, when it's a, when it's a driveway, it's like the gruff dad who's like, you missed a spot, kid. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
So anyway, I was that guy. I was also, you know, making T-shirts in college and like selling. So I was constantly. So really, when I came to New York, I, got, I kind of thought those those are my two things I wanted to do. Is like I was creative, I was entrepreneurial, and so. But of course, the third the third rail, which which was what do mom and dad want you to do? Or what do you think you're expected to do? And it's actually mm-hmm. my first internship. Um, that my senior year was at a law firm, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer. All lawyers are great, Leslie. I know. I know. Um, I'm a recovering lawyer myself, but you should also mention that your parents were professors, right? Yes. So you have a, you know, this, this background of having, you know, very- Mom uh, and dad, right. So dad was the longtime chairman of the history department at Syracuse University. And mom was one of the deans of Newhouse. And I grew up, you know, as a total fac brat, like a faculty brat. And we went to literally every- Syracuse basketball and football game to all the bowl games. Um, but their, their influence really was, you know, dad, you know, was kind of the research, the historian. I love history. Mom was really the, the media side of it. And so, yeah, I kind of got that background. And so when I came to New York, it was, what do I do? Um, yeah. And then ultimately, you know, I, I had a couple of jobs and then I started my company in 2003. But you were, before that, you were at... You were at, you were at VH1, right? Is that right? I was, yeah. So so I, I, you know, again, like any any kid coming into New York trying to break in. Uh, my sister was living in Pelham, New York, at the time. So I crashed on her couch and I commuted yep. to the city in a in a in a ill fitting olive green suit, and went on job interviews. One Amazing. of my first job interviews was at MTV, and that was in 1995. And at the time, 1995 MTV was like the coolest place in the world yeah. to work. And I walked in in this olive green suit and a red tie, and kids were in shorts and Hawaiian shirts, you know, skateboarding past me. And, you know, of course, I'm like the biggest dweeb they've ever seen. And I'm like, hello, Mr. So-and-so. I'm Matt Sharp, and I would like a job here. Um and and then I, I did end up getting the internship, and it, that's where I started. And then I then I worked there for a while. I was a page at CBS for a while. I was Kenneth the page, basically. Amazing, amazing. And I was showing people to the bathrooms at Ed Sullivan Theater. That was the first. You know, you never aspired at your first job out of college to wear a name tag, but uh, I was on Broadway. You know, seating people at Ed Sullivan Theater, which was an awesome job, and that kind of sprung me. I was from there. I went to CBS News. Then I went to VH1, and then ultimately from there started my business. So I love I love the choice of the olive green suit. I mean, for you, um, you know, very off color, literally and figuratively. And so you roll in there, and you. Well, what was the point at the law office when you just? Was there a dramatic exit like you did a... Well, thank you. Yeah. So I, I that was actually the summer after my junior year in college. I came to New York. I got a, I got a job um, actually for a judge out on Long Island, a guy by the name of Kenneth Malloy, who was a very nice guy. He was a mini old Long Island. I reverse commuted. And he had a legal secretary at the time who was a real hard ass. And I was working with all law students. I somehow got this job through connections and was working in this. And I kind of very quickly realized when the guy said, you know, everyone, you know, we have 10 minutes and we're back to the books forthwith or whatever, like yelling at people. And I thought to myself, like, maybe this isn't for me. Of course, you know, you're reverse commuting, living in New York at the first time. Every morning I'm hungover, of course, coming, you know, out from New York to Long Island 
uh, and thinking like, I'm going against the traffic, I'm heading in the wrong direction. And so I'm like, mom, dad, give me six months to try TV and see what happens. Oh, that's so great. I love that. So like, here you go, you've got, you've got sharp shine, you've got sharp seal, and that entrepreneurial, you know, spirit is very alive and well, and you decide in 2003 to go out on your own and start Sharp Entertainment. That's kind of a, that's a big move. Like that's a It was a big move. move. Yes. Yeah. So, so it was, that was a big year, 2003. Um, so uh, my wife, Martha, who you know, um, we were married in 2001. And then, you know, I kind of started looking down the pipeline. I was, I was raised in a family because my parents are academics where we really never, I'm kind of different from them because neither of my parents were entrepreneurial, but I was raised, I was not raised in a family where they're like, how are you going to make money? And how are you going to do this? And how you, like money was never mentioned in my family. So I kind of came to New York and blissfully kind of, you know, going about my life thinking like, this is great. I'll just get my paychecks here. And, and all of a sudden when Martha and I got married in 2001, I thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, if we have kids, like, you know, I got to kind of figure this out and like kind of really, you know, push myself. And so I created some shows internally um, at, uh, at VH1 at the time. And we wanted to do a show. And the idea was, wouldn't it be fun to kind of bring back and do our own version of Lifestyles and the Rich and Famous, which if you remember, Lifestyles Rich and Famous is a very cheesy Amazing. 80s Amazing. show where Robin Leach with his British accent would bring you through Lifestyles and Rich and Famous. Um, and so we started developing that concept. And I think at the time there was a, uh, there was a downturn in the economy and, and the research comes back and says, actually when the downturn in the economy, people kind of want to see this escapist programming like a life, like a lifestyle rich and famous. So this show was the fabulous life. We developed this, the first show well, yeah, well, was the fabulous life with Jennifer Lopez. Wait, did you, did you do the, who did, who does that research? Were you doing that research before you pitched it or you just decided this, this would be a great idea and then you wanted to see if the market, if it would, it would, you know. So that was, so I was working internally at the time. So that was before I started my company. Right. And I was working internally at VH1. And so it was, here's a nugget of an idea. Let us run with it. And the people that work for me within VH1, we all got together and we put together a, a binder. And we thought like, who's the best person at that time? And again, this is 1990 or sorry, this is 2000 and 2002. Who's the best person? And this was like Jennifer Lopez heyday. Jennifer Lopez was the biggest star in the world. And we're like, no doubt it's Jennifer Lopez. So we put together the research and then we got a pilot and we said, let's do this pilot. And, and we we had so a couple. They, of so they gave you the funding. Sorry, VH1 What's gives that? you the VH1 gives you the funding for the pilot. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So VH1, um, when you know, either way in these scenarios, you're getting the funding from the network. But VH1, um, you know, was working internally, and we budgeted the show out and said we're going to do a pilot. Um, and uh, you know, the the funny thing about that is that at the time, and this is really before a time of, of Us Weekly and In Touch and definitely TMZ, where, you know, we're kind of like a new era of celebrity where they're so used to getting poked and prodded and, and looked at and whatever else. This was a show that was before that, where really dealing with a celebrity, it was it was basically authorized. Like you'd go to their team and if you they said, we actually don't, we don't want you to talk about us. You said, okay, you know, we're not going to talk about you. This was an unauthorized show where we did all this research about Jennifer Lopez. We put it all together and then it aired. Um, 
And uh, Wait, so the, you didn't get her. You didn't go to her first to ask. That, her was, that was actually no. Like in those in the it, you know it, at the time, this was one of the first. I mean, there are other unauthorized shows, but this was really that was like a down and dirty, cheap cable show where like we're gonna we're gonna take a lot of clips. It's a clip show, right? Like that exists prior, and we're gonna do a show about J Lo, and it's gonna be all about her money and where she lives and where she eats and where she goes to travel. Um, and this aired. And it became a, a huge hit. Like it was like, you know, back to what you call a backdoor pilot, which is it's a pilot of television that's not promoted or anything like that. They just kind of throw it on the air and you hope it rates. And if it rates, there's potentially you may you might do a series from that. So we put it on the air, it became a huge hit. And then a week later we got a call. VH1 got a call from JLo's management and said, you know, what the F are you doing? Um you got to take that off the air. It's like, you know, this is really invasive. And so we kind of met with. What what, what was featured? Were you like, here's her Miami house. This is. Yeah. It's like, I mean, we, we, you know, obviously you don't give away people's addresses, but it's like, you know, here's where she ate. And we did a, we did a thing at Mr. Chow. Like when, you know, and you interview the maitre d' there and it says when JLo comes in, she likes getting this and that. And, you know, she stays at this hotel and she loves it. And she likes her, she likes her, you know, her room just so. And she only wants general sows. Exactly. Exactly. She loves the general sounds. So we, so we, you know, did the show, a huge hit. We get a call from her manager, a guy by the name of Benny Medina calls up and he's a very powerful guy. I was going to say, I mean, he's, that sounds familiar. Not that I, I mean, you know, I don't know much. Oh yeah. Benny, Benny Medina is like a big guy. I'm some peon working over at VH1 who's just put together the show and he's like furious and JLo's seen it and she's furious. Um, so, uh, we work with them, you know, and like actually a guy with at VH1 who's a very smart guy who ran it named Michael Hirshhorn worked with that and said basically like lay out like all of your concerns. We'll go through and address those. And we did. Uh, but the interesting thing about this, Leslie, is that, you know, so it, that was the first reaction, right? Again, it's before In Touch. It's before Us Weekly. It's before TMZ. People weren't – celebrities weren't used to that. A year later when we – when we actually were doing that show and working really hard and pushing, you know, and doing lots of different episodes of other celebrities, we got another call back from JLo's camp and they said, are you interested in doing a JLo too? So, so the ground had shifted yeah. in just a year where, you know, went from, oh my God, I don't want people talking about me like this to, oh, this is actually good, right? This is good for my brand and who I am or whatever else. Um, so anyway, back to the idea of, of the starting the company. So that show became a big hit. And from there, um, I was always, you know, as I said, entrepreneurial and interested in starting businesses. And I walked into my bosses at VH1 and said, what I really would love to do. I was getting job offers out in Los Angeles and other places. And I said, what I really want to do is stay in New York and start a business. And I credit, again, the same guy, Michael Hirshhorn, who's a great friend and, and supporter, um, and he was, he said, well, that sounds great. Why don't you go start a company? Well, well, you can produce the, the fabulous life as a third party, like, you know, at, through your own production company. Um, and That's so we kind of worked great. out the details. I had my Jerry Maguire moment, you know, at VH1 where, you know, I'm like, who's coming with me? Anyone coming with me to Sharp Entertainment? It's a new company down the street. Who wants to leave the cushy offices? So I, you know, recruited some people. They came with me, and then we were literally building edit rooms around editors 
while, you know, like building a space while we're, you know, making shows or whatever. So that was 2003. But how did that, so by the way, that's uh, your, your friend and mentor and boss at the time, Michael Hershorn. I mean, what a, what a, um, gem he is. Cause I could see a, a big network like that wanting to get into it with you about who actually owns. Oh, right. Well, they like, own it. Do they own it? But, but I think Michael at the time was thinking, right, maybe we could actually like, you know, here's the, what we're spending on internally. If Matt can, if Matt can produce these for that same number or less externally and get rid of all the headaches that come with, you know, right. doing a production internally and all of that stuff, that's probably a win for them. And I, you know, at that point I proved this show was a hit. I was, I proved myself as a executive producer that we could deliver these shows. Um, but anyway, it was a leap of faith on his, his end. And I won't say that the first year or two, there weren't some bumpy moments, including some, you know, some, uh, you know, some tears and calling the ambulance on my part. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, like that's, I think anyone that starts a business has that moment. But how about, I mean, did you, um, I mean, you had to build the boxes for your editors. You had to go have a place to go. You had to take your, you know, Jerry Maguire group with you. Did you have <laughs> friends and family investors? Did you, how did you, did VH1 help with that, with sort of bridging the gap by saying, we're going to do a production deal with you for Fabulous Life to give you the runway that you needed? I mean, how did you structure all of that? Um, so, uh, yeah, when I started the company, um, it was not, uh, you know, I had no investors. I was not maxing out credit cards. And now that, that was the very lucky part about having a committed series, right? Like I was able to say, you know, I think I forget the original order of the fabulous life, but I think it was 18 episodes where the network said, okay, here's your budget for 18 episodes. And that's the money we had to, to you know, rent a space and, you know, start building edit rooms. And of course there's a leap of faith, um, get the edit machines. One of the, one of the early decisions I made was, you know, will we rent edit machines or buy them, you know, and renting them would have been, you know, really expensive and cut into profit margins and everything else. And you're paying, you're giving a lot to a rental company to rent them. But like, if you buy them, you own them, but you know, you own them, like they're expensive and you've got to, you got to pay them off. And we said, you know what, we, we have enough faith in ourselves, at least next couple of years, we're going to buy them. Um, you know, and then, you know, I think we've eventually retired those, but yeah, we went through them. It was a good choice. So you had, so after you have the fabulous life, which is like, I mean, was one of my favorite shows, by the way. Oh, good. And there's not, that doesn't mean that there isn't enough time to bring it back. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of new fabulous lives out there that you oh, could. Oh, we've talked many people. I mean, I've redeveloped that show. We actually almost brought it back with v, for with MTV like a year ago. We had like a whole thing with them. Yes, I know. It'll, it'll eventually be back. I was going to say, keep 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 it in circulation because it's yes. an oldie but goodie. I mean, <laughs> if, if, if Night Court can come back, you know. Oh, you oh my God. <laughs> definitely. I we love need it. a fabulous life. But beyond that, so how do you, how, I mean, you have so many incredibly successful, just exciting, you know, incredible shows that people want to watch. I mean, how do you come up with your ideas? What's your process? Um, tell us how you, I'm sure you've got probably a creative team that maybe pitches you ideas at this point and comes to you, but um, tell yes, me where yeah. you, yes. where, yeah. about, so, the brilliance, about the brilliance. Um, uh, we've got, thank you. We've got, um, a great 
development team um, that that within the company that that that's their job, right? Like they're coming up at all times. They are looking at the world and coming up with ideas and and pitching each other and monitoring what's on you know other networks and the streaming services. Um, looking at you know you know what's tracking in the news, you know what people are talking about, and then ultimately um, looking at the marketplace and saying, you know what what do what are people looking for right now? What what's working? Um, you know, and is there an opportunity for us? You know, to kind of figure out you know something in a space that's working or or a completely new space. Um, you know, to, to go pitch that show. You know, we were, were our development process is you know really focused on you know we want to make shows that work and that people really talk about and people and that's what drives a business and that's that's kind of what's fun about being in this business is when you you know it's fun to have a show it's fun to it's fun to produce a show it's fun to put a show on television but what's really fun is that what you know when people that you know you you're not um, forcing to watch my mom and dad were great like every show i ever watched they were right there watching no matter what they were there watching it on television but you know other people that you're not forcing to watch are really watching enjoying talking about it and that's what's really fun so our development process is focused on we want hits we want long sustaining hits um you know and move the needle in our industry to do cool new things that you know break you know bring us into different genres and and you know just kind of you know think about you know what's the next thing for for the space so you talked about when you were at VH1 that you all did that research to sort of see that you know people were you know kind of down or the economy was down and they wanted to see fabulous lives yeah. is there a i mean when your development team does that research are there is there a go-to agency for that? How do you come up with your research to know what's uh, trending or is it more just their observations and what they're seeing and they're actually creating those conclusions? They're the ones who are saying here, I, I think people are interested in this or this is what's happening now. And I'm sure coming out of yes, COVID, yeah, maybe that's yeah. so like It's all internal. So there's not an agency we go to. We, you know, and there's a lot of gut stuff. Like we'll, we'll kind of come up with, you know, what's out there. Um, like for a show like The Fabulous Life, that was, you know, researchers on those teams that we said, you know, tell us everything there is to know about Justin Timberlake. And, you know, there'd be these incredible binders we would go through and be like, wow, that's a lot of media about Justin Timberlake. I never knew, you know, all this stuff. In terms of the new shows and new ideas, um, you know, we'll, we'll come up with a, with a notion and then and then dig in and uh, dig in a, a little. You know, one I think one uh, example of of kind of how research potentially works is when we did, we did a show called Extreme Couponing, and I don't have the year right handy, but it's you know a number of years ago that became a big number one hit on TLC. And um, and if you if you haven't seen it, Extreme Couponing is uh, it's a show that follows real people. Um, that are really good at couponing, right? Like insanely good at couponing. They can go into a grocery store because they know what they're doing and they use coupons they've gotten out of their papers or online or whatever else and they put these together and they can walk out of a store with a thousand, sometimes two thousand dollars worth of free groceries. Or like, hey, pay us twenty dollars for a thousand dollars worth of groceries. So, so, so the way that came, you know, that that came to be, 
as at the time, um, there was a big trend in television that were really working these found money shows. Like a, a found money show would be something like a Pawn Stars or a Pickers, where oh, yeah. you know, you know, people are like, it's found money, right? It's like, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't. Know, this thing's been collecting dust in my my attic, and I brought it down to someone who kind of knew what they were talking about, and. This is worth you know twenty two hundred dollars. That's found money or pickers. This is over here found money, but those both those shows were very male, and you know they were male skewing. They're on History Channel. You know if you look at the numbers, you know that's so interesting. So the research shows that those are those are male skewed shows because I yeah. just got hot and bothered when you're talking. Like you know what I was thinking about that at the thing in my head. Yes. So interesting. So yes, those are those. I think probably the audiences for those shows are seventy percent male. So at the time we were thinking, okay, so as a production company who's looking to make shows, what's the opportunity? We could go and pitch another male, a male facing, male facing uh, found money show, or we were thinking like, what would be what would be kind of a cool, you know, zag going to a female network. And the you know the idea was we kind of looked at a couple spaces, then we then we saw videos of these people. They were doing this couponing, which was like, it's like a magic trick. You see people, you're like, I cannot believe they just did that. Um, so that was really for, for us. It was like, oh, this could be a found money show for us. Let's go dig into this world. And we thought like maybe there's one or two or three people out there. Maybe that can't sustain a series. And what we learned was it was an ocean of people who were out there, who were like riveted by couponing, yep. who were really good at this. And that sustained, you know, season after season. And when that show aired, um, you know, it was, you know, people like that, that was something that people really focus on because because it's, it's a compelling notion to think like, wait, if I know what I'm doing, I have the know-how, there's a thousand dollars in my Sunday paper. It's just sitting there. Like, I mean, like by the way, again, as you're discussing this, as you're discussing this, I'm thinking how I always throw the coupons out. I'm like, maybe I yeah, maybe right, exactly. Right. Yeah. If you know what you're doing. Get my so, yeah. The term extreme couponing became the, you know, one of the, it might've been the number one search term in the world on Google after that special, the first special aired, it was like, people were like, wait, what? Like, how do I do this? But, but is that, so so you took the found money, like the success of the found money show that had been, you know, kind of seemed like had been captivating a a male audience. And then through the couponing is, was that, I'm, I'm assuming like that was, more women, um, much more female in that area. TLC, which is a female yeah. skewing network. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to look for my, my, um, my. Uh, I, I, I haven't checked my mailbox in three days. I know I'm going to have some fines in there when I'm <laughs> later. But how do you? So the pitch process. So you get this idea, right? You know, you've like discovered this, this. You know, let's let's take you know the the couponing example. And um, your team thinks it's a great idea. You you all kind of do the research that you you think. What what's the next that you think makes sense to figure out whether or not it's a it's a smart thing to move forward with? And then and then what do you do? Do you, what's the next step? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is that and that's like you know that's um, an art, not a science, for sure. Yeah. You know. Again, we're 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 at the the the. the I think at the the place in the company and the, and the, the the size of our company and the amount of projects we have, we really are evaluating a lot of what we think are really good ideas, 
And, you know, they're coming from the development department. They're coming from, you know, a lot of times I'll be, you know, at a dinner with friends and we're kind of talking about a topic and something pops into my head. I'm like, you know, I'm like, I just kind of jot it down on my phone, like, or going running, you like, you know, those ideas pop in. So it's like, so you, you've got all these ideas and then you're kind of saying like, right, which ones are, which ones uh, do we feel like are really great? Then, we, you know, everything else goes out, like which ones are really great that are producible. Then it's, you know, which ones we believe are saleable. That's totally different, right? Like, because networks, you could have the world's greatest idea, but if there's not the d- distributor for that idea, a network or a streamer, it doesn't matter. Like, you could walk in with, like, the next, you know, Mar- American Idol, but, like, if they are they don't do dance shows, doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Or, sorry, singing shows, doesn't matter. So, um you know, and then, and then, you know, lastly, right, like, are, is there actually a place for, for these ideas? So we, 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 we evaluate that. And then we're, then we're figuring out from, you know, you know, our relationships and everything else, what's the best way to pitch an idea. Sometimes it's like, it's just a short circuit. It's, you know, we've got, you know, I've got a lot of relationships at networks now where just through all the shows we've done and, you know, um, you know, we've been around for a while. So I'll pick up the phone and call the head of the network and say, here's a one line. This is, I believe this is a, a hit for you guys. And we've sold series like that. So that's, that's the best way. That's the yeah. shortest way. Uh, and then there's the, you know, we have an entire deck. We've put together a reel. We've cast it. We've invested a lot of money in this. We have a polished pitch. And we bring that out and we're, you know, and then we go around to various networks. We believe that show's good for um, and we're pitching it that way. Is, is one more successful than the other, just in your own experience? Do you feel like if you have the one that sometimes if you're able to do the one line, do those do those often, you know, take the move forward more than the ones that require more um, kind of pitching or selling or, or background information? Or is it sort of? Yeah, like I mean, like, you know, I, I think our most successful shows um, are the ones that we've been most passionate about, um, you know, and so, and, and so either, I guess, either, either of those scenarios, like, you know, ideas fall into those things, but, but a great example of that is 90 day fiance. Yep. Which is, you know, one of our, one of our shows and continues to be a big hit. Um, that was, you know, we, that was a show that we developed originally in 2011 based on a, um, uh, a news magazine piece that, 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 you know, someone was watching for development and said, Oh my God, I saw this news magazine piece. It was, you know, Americans going abroad actually to a Odessa, Ukraine, which has unfortunately been in news, the news recently for other reasons. Yeah. And, um, Americans are going, going over on these, these, uh, love tours and they're meeting women they've met online and, um, they are, uh, you know, falling in love. A lot of these guys are going with engagement rings. We thought this was a great space. And we developed this show and we're like, this is a hit. We love it. It's amazing. We, we put together all the stuff. We, we actually talked to the company that's doing these tours and we had some casting. We walked out and we're like, this is the best idea. And we were resoundingly told this is a terrible idea. Um, we got rejected by everyone. Um, 
So that was, that was like, okay, well, you know, we put that back in the shelf and what do you do? But, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a believer and, you know, all of our biggest shows have been ones that we like really believed in and just pushed through. And so we're like, you know, we're going to redevelop this. It's not for women. We're going to do it for men. And we're going to call it at the time, Spike was a channel, which was like a guy network. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Spike. And so we're like, you know what? It's not going to be called, I forget the name of it. It wasn't called 90 Day Fiance, but it was like 90 Days to Wed or something. That was, so um, we're like, we're going to make it a guy, a guy facing show and we're going to call it Love Wars Russia or something <laughs> like that. Or Bachelor Wars Russia. And that's going to be like, and so we walked, walked all the male networks, but like, no, guys are going to love watching the show. It's like a bunch of guys going over and they're going to like, you know, they're going to the, you know, Europe and they're looking for love and did it, you know, like, and, um, and of course they said, you're crazy. <laughs> you're, we're rejecting you. We don't like you. Don't call us. Um, and then I think we developed it one more time and I was basically done. I'm like, okay, it was like over a two year period. We had, we had put, pitched and pitched and pitched that show. And then I was at, um, a television conference in Washington, DC in, in 2013. And I was having a meeting with, um, a friend in the industry who's now the president of TLC and the president of Discovery, a guy by the name of Howard Lee. Um, and, you know, like any good executive, he said, okay, you know, we had a conversation. He's like, you know what, Matt, I just want to hear from you. I want to hear what shows you're really passionate about. I don't care if we've passed on it because, you know, you know, I don't care if, you know, anyone's passed on it. I don't care if it's, you don't think it's right for us. What's the show you think is a hit that, you know, and I'm like, wasn't even planning on pitching it. And so I took a reel out of my bag. I'm like, oh, this is a hit. And I stuck it in the computer and, and uh, he watched wait, 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 one second. So you did, you did do some filming. It wasn't just pitch. Like well, we, we went together. Was, yes. Thank you for asking. We did, a, we did yeah. a rip reel, what they call a rip okay. reel, which is was we actually didn't film it, but it was from another show that we had done that had kind of sim- similar notes. We cut it okay. together and made it look like that. So I took that out. I played that for him and you know, it ended, he took his headphones off and he says, I'm buying that. So amazing. And by the way, I mean, he must be just, high-fiving you every time he sees you because it's well, we're it's, great friends. It's like, it's really fun as you know, to share success with someone. Um, and, uh, you know, we've shared a lot of success, you know, he was actually the guy who commissioned extreme couponing and, and, um, you know, we both, you know, it's both the, you know, 90 days, both being great for both of us. And, you know, we're, you know, we talk every week still and um, we do a lot for those guys. So, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's been awesome. Great. So speaking of 90 Day Fiance, which I love and everyone I know who's seen it loves. It's great TV. It's great TV. And I think it's great TV because of the, you know, the human. I mean, you're really getting involved in people's lives. Right. And it's real. It's real drama. Um, dealing with people's, people's love lives. I mean, how do you go about, I mean, you mentioned that you contacted the dating service or the service that placed, you know, American men with women, you know, from uh, the Eastern Bloc or Ukraine or wherever they were going to, to find these, 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 um, these fiancés or these brides, where do you, how, how do you all come up with the casting for it now or how, in the past for 90 Day Fiance, how do you find these very, very diverse couples? I mean, not everyone's from the same. Yes. Yeah. So, so, um, 
So originally, yes. So originally, we, you know, in the development process, we kind of reached out to that co- that company and said, "Oh, you know, do you have casting?" And we actually ultimately didn't <laughs> move forward with that company. Um, but um, but that was a real challenge. I mean, because we had we actually just sold this concept based on a kind of a, a bullshit reel that we had put together from another show, and like, hey, look, here's what it looks like. And then 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 you bring it over to production development. That's always a, a fun moment when you know developments sold something that's basically unproducible and hands it to you know the production people in my company. Like, here's the show, and they're like, really? Like, how the hell are we ever going to produce this? Um, and so that was a real challenge. I mean, it was like, how are we going to figure out? Because we want this to be totally organic and authentic. And as you know, this is not a show we're putting couples together. And it's not like this is not, this is not you know, The Bachelor um, where everyone's in a house. This is – we just – it's truly a documentary. We're following yeah. real couples that have already found each other and we're going to – you know. And they all are similar in that one's an American, one's a foreigner, you know, and in 90 day, they're going for a K-1 visa, which is the marriage visa for following that process. But we wanted to be super organic. So our original um, idea was we're going to reach out to immigration lawyers from around the country and just say, hey, we're doing this show. You know, we're, we're doing an authentic take. We're going to we want to follow the lives of you know, an American or foreigner who fall in love, they're going through this process. If you've got anyone in your practice who's a client that's interested, let us know. But we cut, you know, we have incredible uh, um, casting departments. They called, contacted all of these, this huge network of lawyers. And then we got back, you know, you know, in the beginning, it's like, they don't know who you are. They, the show doesn't exist yet. So it's always like, what's this thing? What's this show? You know, when it, when a show becomes in its second season, you know, you're getting all, you get a flood of emails. But in the beginning, right. you know, people are like really suspicious and and they, they don't know what it is. Um, but we kind of got a, you know, a trickling in of some casting and a little more. Um, and I think in the original season, the original season were only six episodes and we had four couples. So, um, and we got some good couples. I mean, we had some great couples in that season, but, but, um, but yeah, like in the beginning, it was like, well, and also how do you tempt them to, are they, are they, do they get paid for participating or are they just excited about being, being. So the American receives in 90 day, the American receives like a nominal fee. We never wanted and the, the foreigner because they're a foreigner and they can't yeah. work. They don't, you know, they don't receive money. Okay. Um, so there's no money for the foreigner, but, but, um, but we didn't, you know, when you're doing a show that you want to be as, be as authentic as possible, what you don't want yeah. is, you know, um, someone in that show, like that becomes their job. Like you don't yeah. want, you don't want the show to become their job. Because yeah. all of a sudden it's like, wait, that's not authentic. They were they were working down at the bank, you know, last week, or they're working at a construction site or whatever else. And all of a sudden, like, now I'm getting the checks from the getting the checks yeah. from the production company, so I don't need to work. So it's like it's a delicate balance. You want to like compensate people for their time, but at the same time, you want this to be super authentic and like you people need to retain their their real lives. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just thinking the reason why I asked that was because I always I often think. Like I rewatched an episode the other night, um, knowing you and I were going to um, talk today. And I was thinking like, 
you know, you're really, they're really putting themselves out there. I mean, it's a lot of personal stuff that they're sharing. I'm like, are they just, you know, hopefully someone's getting like, you know, a, a, a gift certificate to Outback Steakhouse or something, something's happening for them to really want to, you know, let it all hang out. But I think sometimes people want to share their, their stories, right? So maybe it's not, I mean, obviously with like American Idol or, any home show they're they're not compensated but i yeah. just i was really thinking that um sort of wondering about about that piece and i want to talk to you too about that because i know one of your other hit shows man versus food that show had a star like you mentioned yes. you don't want to have you want to keep the authenticity tell us about that show and how did you how does that work when you have a a reality tv star right you don't have kind of an ensemble cast you're not yeah you're not switching it up but you kind of because that person had a that had had a specific talent right i mean yes. <laughs> that yes. that guy yes. could eat you know yeah, a lot of food. Yes. So, yes. Um, yeah so so yeah that's that's a different type of show right so we do lots of shows and actually through the course of my career it's funny every couple of years <laughs> based on what show you have that's a real hit um, people view you differently. So for a while, we were the we were the, um, the fabulous life guys. Then we were right the extreme couponing guys, the doomsday prepper guys. The you know, and that was kind of different. And then we became the love guys. The lo- I'm all about love. Um, uh, <laughs> but in terms of man versus food, like the the, the concept behind that was. Um, there were a lot of food travel logs at the time. Not a lot, but we were kind of the beginning of that trend where, you know, obviously Anthony Bourdain had a great show. Um, then, um, uh, you know, there was diner, uh, diners, drive-ins, and dives, yeah. um, which became a big show. And so our concept was, again, going back to the development space, it's like, okay, how can we – how can we take one of these things and give it like an extra flair or like give it kind of like how we can bring it over the top? And so Man versus Food was like, we need to find a great host. And if we find a great host and they go to all the best kind of mom and pop places around the country and they travel and they're really good and they impart information and the angle will be these are kind of like the best greasy spoons, the places that you you'll drive, you know, you know you know, 15 minutes off the interstate to go yeah. find down a dirt road you've heard about to eat at. Um, and you know, that will be at least be a double, you know, and then once you get the double meaning like, you know, it'll be, we think that'll be a good show, but maybe not a hit. Then the concept is what if, what, you know, every place the guy did an eating challenge. So, um, so we're like, okay, let's cast that. And the original casting was in New York at Katz's Deli. Um, and we had like a big casting call for that. And we had lots of different people, a lot, lot, former NFL guys were showing up and professional eaters were showing up and, um, wait, hold hold that thought. I want to get back to what a professional eater is, but keep going. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So they're all in there and like, you know, and professional eaters, the one thing about professional eaters is that it's not appetizing to watch them eat. So, you know, I mean, maybe some people find it, Joey Chestnut fun to watch, you know, eat hot dogs. I don't particularly want to eat after watching Joey Chestnut eat. So we're kind of like, that's also, you know, you, this is someone who loves food, enjoys food. So we do the NFL guys. And then this guy walked into Katz's who I think his manager basically begged him on to the audition because he didn't have this type of experience. He wasn't like a football player. We kind of thought maybe we'll get a big name or whatever. And this guy came in and he did get a Katz's Deli t-shirt on. 
and his name is Adam Richman. I was going to say, what was his name, Adam or Brandon? It was Adam. Yeah, Adam Richman. And he yep. came in and like, uh, like an audition I've never seen, right? Like he nailed it. He absolutely crushed it. Like he, 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 he knew everything about Katz's. His energy was perfect. The people at Katz's, by the time he was done the audition, everyone was in love with this guy. Not only the crew, but the people that worked at Katz's. Um, he, you know, what makes a great host is not only charm, um, you're funny, you're, you know, you're attractive, people want to be with, you know, you're, but really what makes a great host is, is two things. One, you're smart and you prepare, you know, and Adam is both those things. He's like really smart and he really prepares. And so he came in like knowing everything about everything, um, and nailed that audition. Is it was like, just, like, it was just throwing out like, trainer, like, this is our guy. Because he's like, this is one kind of corned beef. How long did you did you marry? Did he know all? I mean, he must have been a. a oh yeah, uh, he knew that. Expert. He knew the history of Katz's. He knew the little old lady behind the counter. Like you know her story. Like that's how you become a great host. You actually engage with people, and you like really, you know. And it's amazing. And if someone's not prepared, I really believe that America's got like a like a hidden kind of detector in everyone's yeah. chest. If someone's full of shit or they're not authentic, people, they might not say, they might not outwardly realize that's the case. But at the end of the day, they're just not engaged by the material. Like they'll like, you know, if someone's really engaged and they're like really telling you something or whatever, like you'll lean in as an audience member. It's yeah. Adam, like you, you listen to him talk and you just lean in because he's got like a joy. He's got a passion. Um, so he was he was awesome. And then that show became a big we launched the first episode and that became the number one show on travel channel of all time. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing show. Is there out of all the shows, I mean, we haven't really even covered doomsday prepper, which is another amazing show. Um, punk, punk and chunkin. I which, know you guys you know, are preppers. Don't what's that? No, you guys are preppers. Well, you, as you do, you know, I had an inflatable raft in my closet in our apartment for, for 10 years. <laughs> that might have been a little tough taking across the East River, but. You know, we never really wanted to think about the East River currents. It was more just the, it was just right. having it for show right. yeah. that we, you know, we had, we had more soup cans than you. And um, I told you the story where I got the, when I was working in my law office, a, um, yeah, my husband Andrew bought me this. Uh, there was this Israeli spy store, like on Second or Third Avenue, that sold the bags. This is like a couple of years after nine eleven, and it had like a a, a zip up suit with the mask. Yeah, and I brought it to my law office, and everyone's having lunch in the conference room, the partners, and I thought it'd be funny to put it on with the you know the gas mask cartridge and go into the conference room. And so I went home and I told my husband the story, and he's like. How could you tell them you had it there? I can't believe they know you have it. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was like, they're my friends. I just showed. I brought this freedom. I'm working in Carnegie Hall Tower. That someone's gonna, you know. He's like, no one's your friend when a dirty bomb goes off. And the end of days comes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you get that. You get the full view there. But that was another show, and that probably, honestly, was just like all your of your other shows that you've pointed out having a context with what's going on, you know, in, in society, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It be, yeah. you know, that, that is sort of after nine 11 and the years following that, you know, crazy people, you know, like us yeah. had 
had, and that's, you know, that, that, you know, that was like, right. If you look at like our shows, you know, extreme couponers, that's a subculture, right. And the same yeah. thing with doomsday preppers, that's a real subculture that we kind of, we originally did a special and we thought like, Oh, there'll be two or three people out there. They're doing this. And this will be an interesting special. And, you know, of course you, you unearth it and you kind of peel back the onion and you realize that it's an entire world of people. Um, you know, the interesting about that show is I think originally we redeveloped that show as really a pure subculture show. Like, look, these people exist. Isn't that interesting? Right. Like that's kind of like a subculture show is like here, here are people in America that exist. We're going to tell really interesting stories about these people that are interesting. And I, I think probably our first impression was people were going to watch it like that, right? They were going to watch it like, wow, that's crazy. Honey, get in here. Look at this guy. You know, he, he turned his entire pool in his backyard to a tilapia fishing pond, you know, so they could eat tilapia out of their pool. Like what, what the research came back from that show and people weren't watching it like that. They weren't yeah. watching it like, oh, my God. I and mean, some people were. But most people were watching that show with a pen and notepad. They were taking notes in that show. They were like, you know, there was like real takeaway, just like you, probably you and Andrew were sitting there, you know, on the edge of your couch, taking notes and trying to figure out what your next move is. You know, oh. that's, that's you know, that, you know, of course, the only person that didn't listen to that show is me because when Hurricane you know, uh, Sandy rolled through town. I was the last guy at CVS desperately buying, trying to buy batteries. I'm like, wait, I'm the executive producer of Doomsday Preppers. I'm not prepared. And I only have one flashlight with yes. no battery. Exactly. Yes. That's well, me. the thing is, too, as you know, the, the, one of the problems with having my closet was that all of our dear friends like you knew about the closet. So at some point, yes. if things yeah. really went south, we would have a lot of people Right. The, 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 I think the whole people say that like you can be totally prepared, but the guy with the gun basically owns it all. It's kind of like, okay, yeah. we know the Heaney's have stuff. We did have, we also had a backpack with like $2,000 in cash and a steak knife. I mean, I, I mean, it was just, I don't know what the thought was in there, just in case things really went south. But so when you started and you were doing your pitching, you were dealing with cable TV, you know, streaming yes. yeah. was not a thing. You know, how did that, how was that? transition for you and I guess the industry in general was probably kind of like gosh this is a new thing and is that going to change my format is that going to change my audience it audiences for my different shows or other shows that ideas that I have for shows what was your thinking around that and how did you kind of um begin to um just adapt to that new that new opportunity sure yeah um so we, we, you know, we have, I mean, it's, it's, I guess we view our company as we're content makers and the distribution platforms are going to change. Um, but as, you know, as long as we're, you know, um, you know, making great content, you know, telling great stories, we can sell or bring shows to anyone. So if it's a if it's a, a cable channel, a linear cable channel, if it's a streamer, if it's a website, um, you know, we've pitched you know uh, brands before. You know, kind of goes directly to you know to you know through brands, brands funding shows. So all those places, but we are content creators that, you know, we, and we make shows soup to nuts, right? We, we, we come with an idea, people say yes. And then ultimately we have all the means of production and that's, 
you know, we've got the edit rooms, we've got the producers, we've got everyone. And we ultimately just say, here's your show at the end of that process. And so for us, it's absolutely, there's disruption in the industry for sure. And that, that changes a lot of things, but just, just as a bare starting place, um, things are the same, right? It's like, it's like we're still doing the same thing. It's just potentially, you know, it's going to sell to a different, a different person. Um, in terms of disruption, of course, you know, shows with ads wrapped around them are different than shows that don't have ads wrapped around them. You know, you know, a, a, um, uh, a subscription based streamer, their model is different on buying needs than a linear cable network that needs to like have everything wrapped around ads. So, so those are different. Um, Certainly different platforms There are different lengths of shows. We did, you know, we've done shows for Snapchat, you know, um, you know, much shorter, shorter formats. Um, So listen, I, I think there's going to be, continued disruption i think you know the the certainly the linear cable network is you know right now showing you know it's kind of flattened you know it's there's like the declines aren't that big but it's like continuing to go down a little it's like americans you know i think you know your kids just like mine you know i have a show you know i have some shows you know on you know on networks right now that my kids you know they don't watch TV, you know? So they're like, that's great, dad. Like they're not aware of the show. So like, that's, I think that's like a big generational shift. Like, you know, what are the people that, you know, our children, teens, um, you know, are they watching shows? What types of shows they're watching? And I think that's really interesting, but I think that, but I think in terms of the platforms themselves, um, there are a lot of, there are, there are lots of different buyers and obviously the, the, the streaming services flooded the market. And so there are more places to sell than ever and content overall, you know, I'm like massively bullish about content overall. If you look at content kind of just globally, you know, across all the platforms, it continues to skyrocket. But, but the, but, you know, this is, this is my opinion, obviously as a viewer, it's just interesting to see what some streaming services um, purchase and the content isn't always, you know, high, right? But I guess they have to provide a lot of quantity, um, you know. Um, You're talking about you mean high by premium? Yeah, no, just meaning that some, you know, if you look at, I'm not going to name a certain, any particular streaming service, but they'll have 10 new shows. And as someone who, you know, lives in the boonies and occasionally likes to watch a new show, not all of them are are great shows. I don't know how they, but I think they're looking for content that's more scripted content not yeah not yeah Yeah. listen i mean yes i mean definitely a big phenomenon for a lot of people including people that work in television you see like you know and i'm a guy who's going into networks and streaming services all day and pitching them what i believe is like like a genius show and i'm like wait that's what they picked up that's what they're airing like yeah I get that. I mean, like, you know, listen, I, i understand that and you know i think a lot of people feel that way um you know, and sometimes you know, I'm sure they're looking at our shows and saying, wait, that's what they're picking up? Yeah, never. But, um, possible. But okay, but thank you. you. Thank you. But, you, but yes, I mean, listen, I think, no. you know, continue to, to produce. Do you think for, I mean, you did talk about our, our kids' generation. Do you think, what do you think is the future of, of, um, of, of, of television? Meaning like, 
is it, is it shorter shows? Is it, is it, uh, you know, because a lot of our kids, you know, they were on snap or their TikTok or I don't even know, actually even know all the stuff that they're on, but it's a lot of shorter, um, shorter kind of burst, uh, you know, content. It's, you it's, might want to look into that also. Right. Oh, please. You know, like, right. I'm, I was saying, but like, you're like, you know what they're on. I'm like, you might want to look oh, into yeah, that. I have no like, idea. You know, like, as, as my friend Mike said, <laughs> my house is where you watch Porky's for the first time. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't I'm know like, what they're watching. Put on the list. That's I mean, that's hilarious. Oh I my did God, mention that's that. hilarious. And they're like, wait, you have Porky's at your house? I'm like, I don't know. We have, now you said we don't have Porky's at our house, but it's just the I idea. I on VHS, like an old, worn out VHS tape. You do know I that we so. do have that in our basement, and we have that just in case the internet goes out. I've got all the DVDs, the DVD players, and some good old VHS tapes just in case. Oh, my God. I love to see your friend Tom's like his weird science, you know, his electric wire connection on the two VHS tapes is. I know, weird. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, you're, asking about, you're asking about the future. Yeah, what do you, <laughs> you know? That's, yeah, what's that? I say, yeah. What? What? What are you? I mean, obviously, yeah, you know, I mean, no one can predict the future, I, but I don't think people know. Right. I mean, obviously, you look at like. Um, you know, you look at trends and, you know, streaming is up and, and on-demand television is is up, um, continues to rise. I think, you know, we're looking at that industry now as, okay, there's so many streaming channels if you hear that all the time, right? Like when Netflix first came out, it was, you had a captive audience of people that had Netflix. And so every time you talk to a friend, you, you were all watching the same thing. You'd be like, oh my God. You know, we want you had a share experience because everyone was watching that show, and now it's there's just there's not a lot of cross cross sections with people that you're having a conversation to say like, oh, I'm watching this, oh, I'm watching this. What are you watching? I'm watching yeah. this. Like it's just like there's a lot of misses there. So obviously there's a ton of content. Um, you right, know, there's think, less there's less water cooler. You know, talk. There's now less that- water cooler. It's very hard. It's very hard. Um, and so the question is just, you know, you know, so we have so many streaming services, it becomes kind of like cable again, you can't have them all, and then you're missing this show and that show. So do we are we heading back to kind of cable again? I think, yeah, I think the bigger question is what this, how do how does the younger generation consume content and what that content's gonna be? Um, right. you know, certainly if you look at movie theaters right now, I mean they're they, you know, they're they're still I looked at the numbers the other day. They're at 1995 levels today. They so it grew, 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 and then it started to started to dip in like 2017 before the pandemic. And obviously, the yeah. pandemic it fell off a cliff. And now we're kind of back up to, to, to 1995 levels of movie theater. You know, and that's and that's gross sales. And I think the right. tickets are probably three times the cost. So, so, you know, so people aren't going to the movies. And so the question is, you know, is there an attention span where people stop and what they don't want to watch a half hour of television or an hour of television because right. content is so captivating on their phone or what does that look like? Um, I, you know, I think in the short, there's like the kind of short and medium term, I think the short and medium term, I think, you know, I think I think the streamers will continue to to work. I think cable will probably continue to decline, but slowly. Um, and um, you know, and I think ultimately, at the end of the day, people there is an experience where you're watching a piece of content that's not 
not five seconds long or 13 seconds long that you're being told a story and people love to hear a story. And that that's probably in people's homes, but you know, and I think kids will continue to do that. But, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like going back to the days of they're going on cable television and saying, Oh, my favorite shows at seven o'clock on this particular network. Yeah. That's dead. What about for Sharp entertainment? Where do you see your company headed? Um, well, we, you know, certainly we look at it as, you know, we have a core business and our core business is, um, uh, right now it's mostly linear, um, you know, nonfiction programs. So, um, we want to keep building that business and growing that business. I think we can, like we've got, you know, um, a couple of big hits right now, which we're excited about. And we, you know, we look to kind of grow that. And I don't know if you, you know, like 90 day fiance, and it's got a number of spinoffs, which we produce all of those. So, you know, not just 90 Day Fiance, but before the 90 days and 90 Day the Other Way and Happily Ever After and The Single Life. So that, that show, you know, continues to do very well. And we want to, you know, like, and when you're looking at a show like that, you want to say, you know, we don't want to sit back on our laurels and think, okay, that show's a hit. People like watching that show. So we're going to kind of move our attention away from it. But how do you like year after year come up with what else can we do in the show to be surprising and give people yeah. a new experience and tell different stories. And that's, you know, we constantly sit around and do that. So we're like kind of looking at our current business and saying, how do we sustain this and make it better and grow it? And then, then outside of that, we're really interested in white space areas, you know, and what I mean by that is, you know, what are those adjacent worlds that we're not entirely in yet um, but we want to, you know, we have never done a, a we've done scripted esque shows. We've never done a full scripted show. Um, and we have a couple projects that that um, have come close, very close, actually, and then kind of got sunk by the pandemic. But that's I, I would love to do that. And, you know, you know, my my, you know, like when I go to bed at night and I pick up a book. It's always history. You know, I'm just like a nonfiction history guy. Like I just, that's what I like, love to read. I'm, you know, super interested in biography and history, you know, and a lot of times probably driving my development department department a little crazy, you know, that, you know, it's usually the, a lot of the ideas are coming like, here's the last book I read and here's the great scripted show we could do with this book. Um, that's really interesting to me. And I think that would be, um, that would be a creative challenge. Um, but a lot of fun, and I would love to do that. Uh, then, then there are, you know, there are other, I think, concepts that are, you know, just where it's going back to the question of where content's going. Um, you know, there's there was a, there was a, there was an idea that came out like kind of the beginning of Amazon, and people talked about like it was called the long tail, and I think there was a book called the long tail. And the long tail was the concept where. It was no longer the big hits, right? Like it, it was no longer the the. It was no longer like the the Michael uh, the Michael Crichton novels, the John Grisham novels that was driving Amazon. Those were making millions, but it was actually this just incredible long tail, right, of all these titles that you've never heard of that were selling ten thousand books or five thousand books, but there were so many of them that that drove the majority of Amazon's business. And I'm looking and we talked about, you know, right, like the must-see, the kind of, you know, the the water cooler shows. We yeah. see that less and less because there's so much content. Yeah. And 
there are, and you know, people are, you know, segmented and they really kind of want, you know, and as technology has changed, you know, is there a show about, you know, people that are really interested in a very specific topic? Um, obviously, Doomsday Preppers is probably not a show that could have been produced, you know, 20 years ago. People be like, this is weird. But like, it, you know, but I think there are going to be shows that like really laser, laser focus at, you know, what particular audiences. It might be an audience of 10,000 people, but that 10,000 people is extremely passionate and committed to this topic, you know. And so what does that business look like? For us, if that's a one-off show that doesn't – making a show for 10,000 people doesn't work. But I think there, that that's a world that we're interested in saying like how would you – access those audiences ultimately you know very low price point um content but for for much smaller groups of people but that are that are extremely interested in a particular topic would that be like looking at certain streaming services that are tailored to those topics like you know the Christian network or the, or the, I mean, I don't even know if there is yeah, one. No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, like, listen, I think, you know, there's verticals, right? I think the verticals, I think verticals and we see this, right? Like verticals right. in every, everywhere in our lives, verticals are becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, right? Like it's just, you know, it used to be, you know, when, when they invent, in, invented television, the heyday, you know, like the 1940s, the fifties, where it's like, there were three networks and, you know, each show, each show was getting 50 million viewers. Um, that became like a that became like a big you know like that one particular show everyone was watching, and that doesn't happen anymore, right? Like no one with Super Bowl is like one one thing. Um, and so I think we're looking at the future of content. It's just more segmented. It's more you know uh, it's broken up, and um, and so I think that you know, ultimately it's going to continue. And, you know, we see this on, on, on social media and in Facebook and everything else, everything, everyone's in their own lane. I think that's going to be happening more and more. That's going to be very, that's going to have a larger sort of impact on our society and our culture, right? If people, part of having that, you know, you know, let's go as far as being an American, but having, you have those shared experiences, right? You all, everyone's watching cheers and you can all, get together and have that common, that common, um, find that common thing funny, right? Or you can shift, you know, um, cultural norms and, you know, by having a show like Modern Family, or you can really just, so it's, that's one thing where you don't have everybody having those, having that same exposure to certain content is going to have a, um, it's going to have an interesting impact on our culture over time, for sure. Um, well, you, Matt, as you know, are one of my favorite people on planet Earth. Your wife is one of my favorite people on planet Earth. And your children are. And you've done an amazing job, uh, not only in your professional life, but in your personal life of having just just a wonderful family. How do you, I mean, how do you, how do you balance that? I mean, I actually think I know the answer to that because I've watched you um, over the past 15 years um, be such a present um, parent and, and spouse. But What's your secret? Give some advice to the listeners. Work-life balance, you know, prioritizing. Um, so thank you. <laughs> um, that's, you know, um, you know, that's, I mean, certainly I think that's, that's massively important. And it's, you know, um, and it, not everyone has that opportunity. And, and it's not, you know, it's not because they're, you know, 
not a great parent or a great father or a great husband. It's just not everyone has that opportunity because that, you know, there are many Americans that are working three jobs and, and yeah. they have to, and, you know, they can't have that work-life balance and that's, you know, um, and that's unfair. Um, you know, with this, with this, the, with my career path, I've been able to do that. Um, certainly, you know, we've worked extremely hard at the company to kind of grow the company and, um, you know, push it to be as successful as possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, a huge priority for me is being with with the family. We've got a very close family of four children who, um, you know, uh, they, they, you know, um, we like being together, but I will say that, you know, over the pandemic, when they saw dad was sticking around from home, even when the pandemic might have been over, still at home, they're like, dad, anytime you want to go back to work, that would be awesome, including Martha, who was like, oh, my God, can, can you just like, and it's actually Martha, as you know, Leslie, I was sitting around and um, and she thought it was like, great, Matt's going back to work. And all of a sudden, she looked up in the dining room and realized I was still here. She <laughs> She well, went we out. all have that. We all have that. Yeah. She went out. She then she went off and got a job. She's like, I'm like, wait, you're going somewhere now? Like, wait, I, I'm in my sweatpants. You're going somewhere? Um, so anyway, we but, but like I keep do you guys on your toes. We like to keep you guessing, you know. Yeah, you're not and, you know, I was raised by my dad, who my dad, who was a very successful historian, wrote books and everything else. He actually um, you know, that was like he was always the coach of my little league team. Yeah. Always the coach of my basketball team. He was at every play, every birthday, every this. It was like that was his priority. And I learned from him. Yeah. Um, that was that was super important. Well, I'm so excited to see where Sharp is headed. You, you know, I always have a story we forgot. I forgot to mention was that you two have been subjected to me pitching you ideas from <laughs> all my <laughs> I had a personal trainer. We're gonna who do was, it. I'm confident we're going to do it. Hive, she was our company was high rise hive. She had beehives in the top of her apartment building, and I think she was the head of like the maybe the Manhattan um, uh, sect, sect of the the, uh, the the honey making group within the the, the five boroughs, and, and there was lots of infighting, lots of drama. So um, I did. I, I did bring bring her in to meet you at Sharp, which is, I mean, that's the last thing you need. But you know, you never know. You never know if there's going to be a hit around the corner. With and, and we love the title, Busy Bees, but we just couldn't, you know. So yeah. hopefully, I won't be doing that too much to you in the future. But um, it was so great to see you. So great to catch up. Really, so great to hear about. Um, of course, I, I we all get to see the incredible product that you create. But it's so interesting to hear the backstory and the process and learn about your, your journey. And so I really appreciate you um, coming in to talk with me today. Thank you. My pleasure. So fun. A huge thanks again to Matt Sharp for joining us on the interview. I hope you enjoyed our chat. And if you did enjoy the show, I hope you'll subscribe, rate and review us on Apple podcasts or follow us on Instagram at the interview with Leslie Heaney. A new podcast is released every Wednesday. But until then, this is Leslie, and don't forget to join the interview.